The way you feel when you fall in love or when you get dumped can be almost impossible to describe, let alone begin to define. But scientists are trying to do exactly that by looking at what happens to us on a biological and a physical level when we fall in love. Welcome to Science Island. I'm Leah Hitchings, along with Grant Burningham, and today I'll be talking to Megan Laszlocki, author of The Little Book of Heartbreak. It's not just all in your head that you feel good and so on, it's that there really is a rush of hormones that accounts for the feeling of being in love. This is KACRLP 96.1 FM, and you're listening to Science Island, a deep dive into the world of scientific innovation and discovery. Next up, why it feels like you're literally going to die when you get dumped, and why the chemicals in your brain have more to do with remaining monogamous than you might expect, here on Science Island. Grant, can you tell us a little bit about the first time you got dumped? I think I just got ghosted when I was in like seventh grade. Does that count? Yeah. Like just the, the phone call stopped coming back. I stopped getting notes in between third period or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was left to cry alone in my locker. Yeah. Tears. <laughs> Did it feel like at the pit of your stomach, like you it had was, lost something? It was truly... true agony. It was true yeah. agony. Yeah. So um, what was also happening in your brain at the time was that your caudate nucleus which is the part of your brain that's activated by love, um, was feeling like it was going through a withdrawal. So uh, later in the show, we'll be talking to Megan Laszlocki about what scientists are really excited about exploring uh, for this sort of emotional state and how they're actually trying to define love in a scientific way. So what's the end product here? Are they trying to produce a drug? The Tylenol, um, they found if you're going through a breakup, can help you experience social pain, um, the scientific term for heartbreak, in a way that helps you sort of get through the pain. Social pain, huh? <laughs> I, it's like a terrible Tom Waits song. <laughs> yeah, and you were feeling social pain, as, feeling social a, pain. as a you know young 12-year-old. Um, But it also taught you something. So another area that scientists have looked into is the fact that um, heartbreak and social pain teach you lessons. So it's actually an evolutionary experience. Um, So sometimes, you know, people throw around the idea of creating a pill that you could take to either fall out of love with somebody who's toxic or forget the experience entirely. And something that scientists and neurologists say time and time again is that what you're doing then is erasing um, the evolutionary lesson that you can take away from that experience. Did you have a heartbreak song that you listened to when your heart was broken, Leah? Yeah, I I feel like um, laying on my high school bedroom floor listening to the Bush, the first Bush album, Gavin Rossdale. Pre, pre-Gwen pre Stefani. That's good. I think that really got to a lot of girls in Portland, Oregon that year. Uh-huh. And it really got us through. Um, so the one comfort that we can take in this is that we're experiencing something that is true across all sorts of cultures around the world. We're not suffering alone. 
Um, and something that I found really interesting was the fact that there's a word for heartbreak or heartbreakage in so many different languages globally, um, except in the Indonesian culture where it's referred to as a breakage of the, of the liver. <laughs> breakage of the liver? <laughs> yeah. Social pain slash breakage of the liver. Okay. Um, so again, it's just trying to describe that pit of your stomach horrible feeling that nothing's ever going to be okay again. And it's because that part of your brain that has gotten used to being bathed in oxytocin and vasopressin knows that it's not going to be getting its fix again. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder, like, even we call it heartbreak. Is it really something that we feel in our heart or is it just happened to be in our chest? Like, why, why do we associate our heartbreaking with um, the pain of rejection? Yeah. One term that I really have an appreciation for is Twitterpated from the Bambi mm -hmm. movie. I think it really gets to the way that we, as a culture, are encouraged to think about falling in love um, when really it's your brain being bathed in certain chemicals and a certain part of your brain, the caudate nucleus, lighting up on an MRI. It's kind of a depressing way to think about it, Leah. <laughs> but a really fascinating, interesting way. And what I find sort of heartening about the research is that it gets to the core of what it means to be a human. These are sort of biological experiences that span all sorts of different people and cultures. Um, and at the end of the day, nobody likes getting dumped. So you say that now, it makes us human now, but you realize in five years, they'll turn it into a pill and we'll be taking like monogamy pills or something. Yeah, and um, I did a little bit of reading about the fact that the chemicals that overtake our brain when we're in love and when we want to be monogamous are the same chemicals that monogamous animal species have sort of firing in their brains as well that help them sort of stick with that mate for life. So, you know, we talk about finding a soulmate as this sort of magical experience when Perhaps it's just a certain mix of hormones that our brains have hit and want to land on. Grant, have you ever felt addicted to Mrs. Burningham in a way that you would possibly be addicted to nicotine or cocaine? You know, I remember the the feeling of, of falling in love, uh, the adult feeling of falling in love being totally overwhelming and you know spending a lot of time nearly unintelligible to my my friends and family members because I was I was going through something that was so total mm -hmm. and you were technically if a scientist was taking your MRI scan at the moment then it would have shown that you were just as addicted to your future wife as you could have been to any sort of substance. Yeah, not exactly something you could write a love poem about, but... Um... <laughs> um, I remember a high school boyfriend that I pretended so hard to be into Metallica for. Metallica? You're not into Metallica? <laughs> Metallica and the WWE, in particular Stone Cold oh, Steve Austin. Okay. Yeah, wow. I was willing to really just put it all out there. But at the same time, that sort of taught me a little bit about how to 
forge a lasting bond with my future partner, as in Metallica, <laughs> or trying to find commonalities, common things that you can enjoy together um, to make the bond stronger in the long run. I do find myself at quite a few A's games these days, and that's really but because that's, that's because of your love of the A's. I do love the A's, and I really love my husband, who really loves the A's. <laughs> it's hard for me to think in scientific terms. Part of me hopes that in the end, when you're done examining love, there's something that's kind of beyond all that. But, you know, it's it's hard to argue with the science. Sure. And if you are a scientist that's in love, maybe this is the ultimate way of exploring that feeling for yourself. Um, there is a ton of research that continues to be done on this subject. Um, and you would really think that it would have sort of been um, figured out by now by neurologists and psychologists, but they continue to sort of wade in. This is something that Megan Laszlocki, who we'll be talking to later, found when she was doing her research is that there was just a whole ton of it to go through and new research is coming in all the time. Megan, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So what exactly happens to the human brain when you fall in love? Well, basically, it activates your um, your reward system. And it's exactly the same system um, that is activated with addiction. And um, so you, you, your cravings are activated in a way that is exactly the same. And that's why you get so excited when you want to, when you're going to see the person and your heart beats faster and so on. All of that anticipation functions in your body in a very, um, pretty much identical way to addiction. When you were doing your research for your book, which is available wherever books are sold, um, how were neurologists and scientists able to ascertain those effects? Well, basically what they did was they studied um, the human brain through uh, fMRI scans, um, looking at the brains of people who were in love and people who um, were heartbroken. And they could see that um, through those brain scans that those regions in the reward part of the brain um, in the reward systems were firing. So you see, you know, all of the sort of reds and yellows and so on firing across the brain when people were looking at images of their loved ones. And when you're experiencing the flip side of it, heartbreak, which of course your um, book focused on in particular, what does that look like in the human brain? Well, basically it's, um, it's that you're, you're anticipating the reward, but you're not getting it. So basically there's mapping in the brain that indicates that that's what's happening. And there's that sort of um, almost kind of Pavlovian response. When you see um, a picture of the person who you were in love with and you lost, then your, your, your brain is firing expecting that reward from them. And that is just a very um, confusing thing to deal with to kind of merge the cognitive, um, knowing that they're no longer there with your brain still expecting this, um, this reward in this interaction. And then also you, there's sort of this um, aspect of it that's 
gets into what's called attachment theory, which is basically um, how your brain's neural connections have to rebuild once someone who you are attached to emotionally and chemically, how the neural connections basically have to rebuild to account for that absence. And you mentioned that when somebody feels like they're in love with somebody, that it's almost like being addicted to a substance. Is that right? Yeah, and there's a huge rush, of, of course, of oxytocin um, and, you know, the feel-good uh, chemical. And, um, it's, and it's really incredibly interesting um, that that is, it's not just all in your head that you feel good and so on. It's that there really is a rush of hormones that accounts for the feeling of being in love. Um, and it's also interesting to note here that it's not, being in love isn't technically, it's not so much an emotion, which makes sense because you couldn't really identify somebody as being in love by like glancing at their face. Like you can identify if they're angry or you can identify if they're sad or something, but in love isn't something that's sort of, you know, you don't walk by somebody and think, oh, that person's really in love. Um, so it's important to kind of note that love is a state and it's fueled um, by these particular um, bodily chemicals. Mm, and so what you're saying is that when you're going through a breakup, you can really actually experience physical pain. Um, so the pain part is very interesting. Um, there's a lot of research being done on that. So um, first you have to identify what pain is, and, and even the definition of pain is something that researchers grapple with. And then um, there's a, a way to distinguish between physical pain, which you feel like, you know, touching a hot stove or whatever, and then what's called social pain. And social pain is when you are um, hurt emotionally, you're excluded from a group, or um, obviously if you are um, you know, broken up with. And what the researchers are finding is that in terms of, of the brain, pain is pain. And that there's even some suggestion that you can treat um, social pain somewhat in the ways that you treat physical pain. There was a study that showed actually that just taking a Tylenol can make people feel better when they are experiencing social pain. So it all travels through the same pathways. So it's very interesting when you think about um, basically the connection between science and language. So we have all of these words to indicate um, social pain or heartbreak. You know, um, and you say, oh, you know, I'm so hurt, um, I'm in so much pain. Heartbreak, of course, indicates, a, you know, a, a, like a bodily breakage. And um, so I find that very interesting that basically language and metaphor are reflecting a bodily sensation that is um, that's triggered by hormones. And there is an actual broken heart syndrome, isn't that right? That is a different thing. And nobody, to my knowledge, has really studied what that is caused by. Cardiac um, surgeons who I spoke to 
suggested that it might be caused by kind of a clash of what's called the sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous systems firing at once. So basically being um, the fight and the flight systems are firing simultaneously and it's like putting the gas and the brake on at the same time. And that kind of the clash of those hormones might be what's causing that sensation. And I thought you posed a really interesting conundrum in uh, in your book at, towards the end of one of your chapters where you pose the question whether um, if we can treat heartbreak as a sort of medical illness, if you could take a pill to fall in or out of love, is that something that we should do um, on a cultural level? Yeah, it is a really interesting question. You know, I think that we all have um, in our histories a sort of um, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind <laughs> um, experience where we just we had an affair of some sort that we just really would rather not have happened. Um, but at the same time, I think that these sorts of things really shape who we are and they make us um, more rich and complex and hopefully more empathic. So much as it would be really nice to be able to um, fall in and out of love somebody uh, with someone on command, um, uh, I think that then you would lose so much of what makes humans complex and interesting. And you also mention in your book that social pain can serve an evolutionary purpose. Yeah, exactly. Um, basically, you know, humans were evolved to, you know, evolved to support each other, you know, on the savannah, um, protect each other from animal, wild animals and from other dangers and so on and so forth. And isolation is not good for humans. We are, we are fundamentally social animals. And um, when we are in pain and we cry out in pain, uh, we're alerting the community that we need support. And it's the same thing with um, with social pain, because you are, you know, ideally expressing it, sharing it, and you need that experience to be able to process it. And um, sure, there's also, you know, there's the flight response where we just... Um, I've certainly had situations when I've been heartbroken and I've literally just crawled into my bed and stared at the wall for what felt like weeks. Um, but you really need the support of your community to be able to um, reassure you and rebuild those um, social connections that support you and ideally make connections that will um, replace the one that you lost. Hmm. So there's sort of a biological uh, need or tendency to actually have to rely on other people, would you say then that going through heartbreak could end up reinforcing your social bonds and making you a happier person in the long run? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think there is something to that, um, you know, pick yourself up, get out of the house, <laughs> go out <laughs> All of that, and from a sociological perspective, is reinforcing your social bonds. And a reminder, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to KACRLP 96.1 FM. This is Science Island. Today I'm talking to Megan Laszlocki, 
author of The Little Book of Heartbreak about what happens to us on a biological level when we fall in or out of love. Uh, Megan, you had a ton of really interesting research in your book along scientific lines, and part of that was also looking at parallels in the animal kingdom. Yes, that is a fascinating area of research. So um, one of the things that particularly in our culture that we're kind of brought up to believe is that monogamy is um, really the only way to um, to pair off. And um, increasingly, of course, in the past hundred years or so, serial monogamy is is, I would say, tolerated. Um, as people um, get married and divorced and so on and so forth. Um, but still, this this notion that really you should be paired with only one person and that's what's natural for humans is pretty much the notion that's um, that's dominant, although obviously that's kind of being challenged now more and more with um, polyamorous. But people like to... Um, or some people like to really hold up particular uh, animals in the animal kingdom as being kind of the paragons of monogamy, like swans. Swans mate for life, you know, it's not wonderful, so on and so forth. But the research shows that actually um, that no animals are monogamous. Um, they um, also catch them on the, you know, on the side. And this is just part of nature. And so it's just really interesting that um, these particular animals have been kind of fetishized over the centuries for their seeming um, devotion when that's really not the case at all. Um, that sounds a little bit similar to human couples. Exactly, exactly. Um, swans, um, sure, they might um, be seen on the pond paddling around um, as monogamous with only one mate, but the reality is um, that they know, you know they know from from studying the the DNA of these animals that individuals are you know getting a little play on the side. And I also found it um, really interesting how you uh, came across in your research the fact that the chemicals in our brain that make us monogamous are the same chemicals that uh, tend to help animals stay monogamous as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. And one of the things that's really important to note there is that um, it really varies from individual to individual um, in humans, and that's because the brain wiring is different. And so, you know, the way I like to think of it is that um, not being monogamous isn't necessarily entirely a moral failing. Um, yes, being monogamous is is great and it's very important to relationships and so on and so forth. But some people are just wired for it better than others. And um, that's just something to be really conscious of in yourself and in others, I think, is that um, it just works better for some people than others. And, and I think that that's something that is rooted in brain chemistry, can be rooted in brain chemistry amongst other things. And I think that it's something that um, hopefully our society is becoming a little bit more comfortable with. And so what I kind of found interesting about a lot of the research you were including was the fact that psychologists and scientists were trying to come up with these sort of clinical terms to describe things that we all experience 
um, was there some sort of relief that you felt um, having gone through um, love relationships and heartbreak yourself that this was sort of almost a clinical way of being a human being? Yeah, I did. Um, And for me, actually, what was most helpful was reading about attachment theory um, and um, reading about the origins of attachment theory, which I um, which I cover in in my book, which is basically it came out of Operation Pied Piper in World War Two when um, when children were sent off um, primarily lower class children were sent off from their homes in um, in London to live with families in the countryside and um, this caused psychological devastation for um, children to be basically torn away from their primary caregivers and so that triggered this whole kind of um, research movement towards exploring the the bonding between young children and their caregivers and a real understanding that um, that breaking that bond can be devastating for um, for life. So then basically, as that research progressed, researchers started to apply that concept of attachment to adult romantic relationships, kind of looking at how those pairings operate in similar ways you know, the baby talk, the cuddling. So later on in the research, there were basically ways of categorizing how people are attached, like how they generally approach attachment. Through my reading about attachment theory, I was able to determine that I have a long history of being what's called anxious avoidant. And um, and it just really helped me to be able to put a word to it to be like, okay, that's why I avoid relationships. I'm not very good in them. I'm also incredibly anxious about them in the, you know, times when I am in a relationship. So um, for me, really understanding those um, categories was, um, was crucial. So I really encourage anybody who's having issues with, um, with relationships that are really fitting a pattern um, to do some reading about attachment theory because it's very enlightening. Mm, and I did think um, your uh, description of anxious attachment where um, somebody who maybe has gone through a breakup and uh, tends to have that anxious um, tendency in, their, in the ways that they connect with people, that having a quick rebound relationship can actually be a good thing. Yes. Definitely, it can be a good thing. And it's also important to kind of to have an understanding of how your early childhood connects to all this and how your relationships unfold um, when you are an adult. And of course, that's something that you talk about in therapy and so on and so forth. But understanding it through the lens of attachment theory can be really enlightening because, say, you had a distant parent or a parent who was depressed or whatever you know, chances are that your um, attachment to them wasn't as strong as would be ideal. And that can play out as an adult in your romantic attachments because you you probably just didn't learn how to entirely attach. And that can make you um, just not very good at it. And it's almost like 
a sort of rewiring of the brain that has to occur. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and I think being super conscious about it and, um, working on it in therapy and in your relationships can certainly be done. Um, personally, I went from being anxiously attached to quite securely attached. And I wouldn't say that it's easy, but it's possible to do. So thank you, Megan Laszlocki, um, for joining me today. This has been a really um, fascinating chat about love and heartbreak. Well, thank you so much for having me, and um, I hope it's been helpful. So that's it for this episode of Science Island. Thanks for listening. This show is hosted and produced by myself, Leah Hitchings, along with Grant Birmingham. Thanks again to our guest, Megan Laszlocki, author of The Little Book of Heartbreak. We'll see you here next week.